Now, I can't hear anything because I think I've got a cold coming. Um, so if you can't hear me, we're in trouble. I, I'm just going to speak loud enough so I can hear myself. I'm not a poet. I'm not a writer. Not an academic. Not a critic. But I'm a performer. My job is to try to transmit what the playwright, the novelist, the scriptwriter, or the poet heard when they wrote. My job is not to get in the way, not let me get in the way. Of course, in a major aspect, I am in the way I, uh, and, and cannot help being in the way. The words are read through my eyes, transmitted to my brain, whose wiring is subject to my genes and what has occurred to me during my life up to this point. They then transmit out through my voice, out of my mouth and into your ears. So, with this in mind, we can expect every King Lear to be different, colored by the nature of the particular performer. And this is aside from any directorial slant that's been imposed from without. Now we have, of course, some great mimics. Rory, Bremner, Tony Hopkins, not to mention the crowd on Radio 4. But they can only mimic the externals. They can only guess at the soul within. And in the great performances, it is the soul that is speaking. Performing, I think, is sometimes mistaken for something that stands alone. But at its best, it's about communicating. Communication between the actor and the listener. And just as the actor should be prepared, so should the listener. Mostly they are. Uh, the often exorbitant ticket prices have a way of focusing the mind on the moment at hand. When I do a play, <clears throat> my primary concern is the first five minutes and to let the audience know that they're in safe hands. If they will shut out the problems of their day, forget the weather and whether their companions will enjoy it, ignore the person coughing and sitting too high in front of them, and open up their hearts and minds to the world that is before them on the stage, then there is a slim possibility that between us we can make some magic. Yet, like making wine, there's a little way of knowing whether the elements needed, the writing, the directing, the acting, and the audience will coalesce in such a way as to make magic. I've always noticed the way many people remember their greatest Hamlet, their greatest Pierre Gint or Coriolanus, as the one they saw in their teens. For Chenev, my wife, for example, no one will ever touch the magic that was David Warner as Henry VI, sadly. And I, I suspect that during these formative years that we are at our most 
uh, open uh, to the emotions that can be tapped into by great players interpreting great writers. But I digress slightly. For tonight, I want to talk about how I approach reading poetry. Now, this is my way. It's a personal way, not something I was taught, but a method I came to as an instinctive rather than intellectual being. Now, of course, as from my way I see it, there's a dazzling range of what is referred to as poetry, from the haiku to the limerick, doggerel to the romantics, Wordsworth, Milton, Plath, Frost, Heaney, to mention but a few, and Jackie, of course, a macker. They required different things from the reader since they were written by different minds in different moods. But one thing I am sure is that poetry should be read and listened to out loud. Seamus Heaney used to tell how he'd always been held at bay by T.S. Eliot's four quartets, by the bigness of the structure and the opacity of thought, until he heard a recording of them by the actor Robert Spate. Then, what had been perplexing when sight-read for meaning only, became hypnotic when read aloud. Well, I'd always quite enjoyed reading poetry, but had never made, had much opportunity or desire to read it out loud. It wasn't until the late Josephine Hart began inviting me to read at their evenings at the British Library that such an opportunity offered itself. Evenings reading Milton, Auden, Yeats, Plath, and the one she always assumed and seemed to land me with, T.S. Eliot. If, by the way, you've never been to any of those readings at the British Library, I do recommend it. They're fantastic. Some really great actors reading some great poems, and I think they happen every two or three months. So do try. So anyway, I found Eliot dense, difficult, deeply comic at times, and without often really understanding, I would read him on a wing and a prayer. After one such evening, as we settled down to drinks and dinner, Valerie, Eliot's widow, was introduced to me and, and, and muttered something about me having the voice of today for Eliot, and why didn't I record some of his work? Well, I was delighted, of course, but in, shortly afterwards, perhaps by coincidence, the BBC invited me to record The Wasteland. Uncertain of myself and feeling that a woman's voice would help the audience through this extraordinary poem, I asked Eileen Atkins to join me. Well, the transmission seemed popular. Eileen, as you would expect, was certainly superb. And the Beeb came back with a further request for me to record the four quartets. Well, I thought, I'm going to have to do some work here. One of the most, if not the most iconic poems of the 20th century. So I read it, and I reread it, and uh, 
Then I read it again. I read Eliot's biography and anything written about his work, and especially anything about the quartets. I waded through Christopher Ricks and Jim McHugh's annotated commentary. As Ezra Pound said, the more I know of Eliot, the better. I watched obscure American academics teaching the quartets on YouTube, <clears throat> and that finally pushed me over the edge. <laughs> so I put it to bed for a bit. Now, this, there's, something, um, there's something like photosynthesis in performance. I mean, a tree will draw minerals from the soil and the water takes up. The sunlight on the leaves will convert the water and CO2 into oxygen. It will know where the cold wind blows and where the sun will shine. And if its seed has been planted in a fortuitous spot, it will thrive. No tree is ever identical to another. And of course, we are like that. None of us are identical, not even twins. But if we have lived a while, and if we listen to ourselves, and watch others, and listen to their wisdoms, then, like a tree who itself probably has no idea how it's done, we can produce the miracle of a leaf or two. Thus, any person reading a poem will read it differently. But the professional's job is to balance his own emotional and intellectual instinct with the clues given by the writer as to what he was feeling and to what he wants to convey by making the particular choice and constructing the order of the words he has used and the sounds of those words as they rub up against each other and the rhythms of the verse. As Robert Frost said, the sound of sense is lost unless we hear it. <clears throat> if poetry is an attempt to express the inexpressible, then the connection between the poem and the listener is inexplicable. The feeling for symbols and rhythm penetrating far below the concise level of thought and feeling, invigorating every word, sinking to the most primitive and forgotten, returning to an origin and bringing something back, fusing the most ancient and most civilized mentalities. This, Eliot said, is what he was striving for, that profound and rare poetic gift. And if a performer is to do his work properly, that is what he must strive for. He is the mouthpiece through which the poet's soul can emerge. That's asking a lot of anyone, and of course, mostly we fail. Uh, of course, musicians do this all the time. I mean, from pages full of dots and dashes, the great soloists, orchestras, and conductors can produce the sublime. I was once 
lucky enough to be performing Stravinsky's Oedipus Rex with the Leningrad Symphony Orchestra and the Moscow State Choir, conducted by the great Valery Gergiev. I remember him at one point in rehearsals stopping the orchestra and asking them to return to a particular phrase, saying, I think, I can't do the accents, I won't try. I think, he said, I think what Stravinsky was, had in mind at this moment was this. And then he sang the phrase as he was hearing it in his head. And this great orchestra repeated it as he wished. Those hundreds of musicians feeling through their instruments for the delicacy of sound that Gergiev felt Stravinsky had been striving for. But getting back to the simpler transmission of poetry, one thing I've noticed is how... <coughs> um, uh, uh, how you know, now, you see, I made a change here because Chenev said I had to, and I can't read my writing. <coughs> one thing I notice is how sometimes even the poets themselves fail to do justice to their own poems. Uh, present company accepted, and also accepting uh, Seamus Heaney and Dylan Thomas and Ted Hughes, all who, like Jackie, read their own poems wonderfully. But this is not always the case. Eliot, reading his poetry, comes over to me as, as rather dry and passionless, his exterior manner strangling the emotional richness of his work. And I suppose we should not forget fashion. Eliot was reading after the cataclysm of two world wars. Male emotion was not in vogue. But listen to recordings of past actors, much revered in their time, like... Henry Irving, for example, who now sound almost laughable. But all that aside, I believe if a reader today has good, clear communication between his voice and his emotion, and if he sublimates his own ego, then he has a chance, a chance of touching upon something that lay within the poet's heart. For today's audience, Tomorrow, perhaps, it'll need another person, another reader. Of course, Eliot could not resist playing with ideas, both of the ancients and of other writers and poets who had gone before him. And these clevernesses sometimes elucidate his meanings. And so for a student, they are important to study and understand. But for the general listener, such as myself and perhaps more than a few of you, the true message of the four quartets will emerge in your gut and not in your brain. The four parts of that poem take just under an hour to be heard, and knowing that to concentrate continuously for that length of time is beyond most of our capabilities, I often counsel my audiences not to worry if for a moment or two they lose the thread of what is being said. Let it slide over you until you join it again. Doze off a bit, if you will. Some of our greatest insights come to us in that half-sleep state. But when you reach the end, you might conclude that you have been 
part of a meditation. A poet struggling for ways to communicate to get to the still point of the turning world. Except for the point, there would be no dance. And there is only the dance. I'm laying myself open to you, as I try to do to the poet whom I am reading. And if you care to buy the recording on sale in the foyer, you may listen to it and conclude that I have been talking a load of bullshit. But it remains my hope that when you have listened to these particular poems, these four quartets, you will be able to say, there we have been, but I cannot say where. And I cannot say how long, for that is to place it in time. Thank you. <laughs>